Good day and welcome back to another very interesting episode of Supply Chain Now Logistics with Purpose. We are incredibly happy and excited to have a very good guest today. And of course, as always, I am very happy to have Christy with me today. Christy, how are you doing? I'm good. I am, uh, as we sit here and speak, I am coming live to you from Aguascalientes, Mexico, from one of our other offices. So it's been fun to meet more of the team and have the opportunity to see more of Vector and um, the amazing team that pulls off the logistics of purpose that we do every day. No, I completely agree with you. And I keep enjoying Mexico. Have a couple of tacos for me and everyone else that is listening uh, to this episode, because those are really good, really good. And Aguascalientes. (laughs) If you guys have never been to a West Calientes, you should definitely visit a West Calientes as well. But yes. for this episode, we've been trying to contact this company for a while. And I think it's just like a dream come to almost, right? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I am a big fan of them and I know you are too. And so we're we're thrilled for everyone to hear more about Bombas and their work and their mission and um, the giving that they do and the social impact that they've helped create, which is pretty amazing. I totally, totally agree. And uh, with that said, why don't you actually help us introduce our guest of honor today? Yes. Today, we are excited to have Kelly Cobb, who is the VP of Community and Giving at Bombas. So welcome, Kelly. We are so excited you're here. Hi, so great. Thanks, Enrique. Hey, Christy. Hey, we're so excited you're here and to talk about Bombas. And I, this summer, I have been living in my gripper slippers. So thank you for <laughs> making an incredible product that keeps my feet warm, but not too warm during a Georgia heat. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's impressive. I'm so glad to hear it. Yes, I love them. It's an amazing cause. It's a great company and everyone's super excited to have you here on the show today. And uh, we're all looking forward to talking with you a little bit more, getting to know you a little bit better and um, yeah, sharing some of the amazing stories that uh, that you and Bombas are actually uh, making day in and day out. Yeah. So before we jump into Bombas, Kelly, though, we want to hear more about you. Um, so tell us a little bit more about your background, where you grew up in your childhood. Sure. And I mean, thinking about Bombas is definitely one of my most favorite things to talk about. I confess that speaking about myself feels a little more challenging, but I'm up to the task. So, yeah, I grew up in East Bridgewater, Massachusetts. It's a small town on the south shore of Massachusetts with my parents and sister and some pets over the years. I lived there up till the point really that I went to college in Alden, Massachusetts. Um, And my childhood was lovely. I think I felt really lucky to to have a great growing up experience in a small town and getting just enough access to the world around me, I think, to begin to shape where I've ultimately, the place that I've ultimately come to. It's an, it's, it's, always fun for me at least to kind of listen to the story of people and how they kind of go from one place to another until they end up doing what they end up doing and uh so with that said i mean is there kind of like a cool interesting story that kind of shaped who you are now and then it kind of started to slowly push you into the the path that you ended up taking in hindsight i think yes i think a lot of the things that are so much a part of my day to day now were always sort of there. I think as a child, I was always very interested in learning new things and creating things. 
some of them tangible, some of them entirely made up. I would, my sister and I would live in this pretend world that we created for hours and hours at a time, whether it was this made up school that we were teaching at or, you know, any other kind of pretend world. And there was always this focus that we had, even though it was make-believe on it being very detail oriented and sort of as realistic as possible. And I, I kind of see that pattern that I had starting there sort of, and in the way that I wanted things to be organized or presented, whether it was, you know, when playing make-believe or just in a, a family setting at home, if we were setting the table or creating decor for something, I just always thought about the experience, how one would experience what it was that we were doing and paid very careful attention, probably, you know, much to the annoyance of my parents or, you know, <laughs> I was like very particular about how things would be. But with the thinking that I just wanted everyone to enjoy it as best as they could with mine to the little details. So it was always for me about little details. And I think that that really sort of continued to very much be a part of my personal theme in the way that I would go about doing things. And it it really wasn't something I think I picked up on them at the time. It was, you know, probably considered a quirk. Uh, but <laughs> I I can see that having a lot to do with where I ultimately went to. But more than that, so I mean that I can see how it it absolutely supports the things that I do now. Mm-hmm. But also from the give back side, I think early on there was this core value that was instilled in me that one really ever can know one can really never know what another person is going through. And from an early age, when we as a family would go into Boston to do things or be out and about, my dad would always stop to interact with folks that we passed on the street that are asking for help or experiencing homelessness. And he would never hesitate. He was always led very generously. And while I can't say that that experience instilled in me instantly this idea that I wanted to be on a philanthropic path it did it, it certainly stayed with me I think as as a personal core value and is something that I know I've come back to again and again and is certainly you know central to the work that I do now sounds like you had both a good example to follow and were always interested in creating good experiences for others so that certainly shows up in the work you do now um So speaking of, let's talk about your professional journey. After graduating college, what did that early career look like and how did you end up at where you are now at Bombas? Yeah, so it was um, perhaps not the most linear path, but (laughs) I I love making things hard for myself, it seems. I love a challenge and love inflicting that challenge upon myself. (laughs) At the end of college, I found myself one like one course credit short from actually being able to graduate. And I think it was tied to an internship or maybe I reasoned that I could do an internship and get the credits. I loved trying to like work myself out of these types of situations that I would put myself in. So I, there was this pop-up, I mean, in kind of like early days of pop-up, this is 2004. So this pop-up fashion company that would come and sell 
clothing at college campuses, like, you know, whatever hot brands were big at the time. And so she would host these pop-ups on college campuses. And I had probably done a little bit of full-time, excuse me, I had done a bit of part-time work helping out at this fashion pop-up. And knowing that I needed to get these credits, I had the idea that maybe I could convince her to let me build her website and in exchange get internship credits for, you know, to help me graduate. So she said yes, and I set to work creating a website for her, which was something I had only had a little bit of experience in, but had taken a couple of courses toward the end of my my college career and felt like I could absolutely do that. So I created this website for her, and I really loved the process. And again, this idea of how someone would experience the website and interact with it and that it would really help to boost her accessibility to a greater audience and then that sort of set me on a post-college path of like once I got back to my parents' house that summer, I thought I would start a little web design company called Kelly Cobb Design. And nice. I was building websites. And, you know, again, in 2004, most companies, especially local smaller town companies, did not have a web presence. So I just kind of went around seeing who would let me build a website for them and started this like really teeny business and was spend 12 or 14 hours a day in my childhood bedroom just coding and working in macromedia flash at the time to create these sites and I loved it but after a number of months I just couldn't be by myself for that long day in and day out working on a computer and so I thought maybe I could both get a job outside of the house and work on the websites like maybe at night and kind of scale it back. And so I went to a temp agency and said, put me anywhere. I just need to be with people. (laughs) I I need a break from this. And there were a number of jobs that, you know, were like kind of pushing papers around and help at an insurance company or, you know, they were trying their very best to to match what I believed my skill set to be. And in college, I went to UMass Amherst and they had this amazing program where one could essentially create the, their own major. You could get into this program that where you could develop your own curriculum, which is incredible and so forward thinking. Like a choose adventure at college, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which is what yeah. most colleges already do, right? But exactly. it's something like super, <laughs> super creative at the time. Yeah, totally. To be able to create this multidisciplinary focus Uh, felt really neat. So I chose, I called it the business of fashion and I focused both on fashion studies and and business and a bit of like art or creative expression through things like website building and and design, Um, which might sound a little bit disjointed. I'm not sure, but it, it actually, I really, really used my college experience in a big way. So anyway, the temp agency was trying to help me really find the thing that matched my skill set. And one day they called and they said, I think we have the perfect thing for you. It's for this women's fashion catalog company. You would come in like as a temp or as a coordinator and work with the production team. So it happened to be 10 minutes from my parents' house. And I thought, you know, I had sort of felt this pressure to like move into the city or, you know, kind of like get out of there. But I was happy being there and it was a short commute, so I thought I'll see how I'll see where this goes. And my boss then, who's still a very, very close friend now, really saw a lot in me and gave me a lot of responsibility and 
So I was helping to coordinate all of the pieces and catalog production, like working with the buyers and the creative team and going on photo shoots and just helping to be that sort of cross-functional liaison to tie it all together. And a couple of years in, we were sitting in a large conference room and they made an announcement that the creative team that I was on was being moved to the New York City office. And she nudged me and she said, you're going to New York. And I said, no, I don't want to go there. No way. <laughs> and she just said, you can't not go. This is an incredible opportunity. And I reasoned that I didn't necessarily have to like the idea at the time, but I couldn't not go. So I moved to New York for this job and, and continued to do that here starting in 2008 and was mostly focused on photo shoot production, which was a really fun and exciting job, especially as a mid 20 year old new to the city and just kind of bopping around doing photo shoots with, with great crews of people and friends that, you know, that have, I've kept to this day. And uh, it was wonderful until I was starting to really observe some of the producers that were quite a bit older than I was. Like it was super fun to do 25, 26, 27, but saw this sort of toxicity that really kind of permeates the fashion industry in a way that I sort of felt a little bit like a warning sign to me. And I was thinking, I really do love this, but I can, I can see what people are experiencing, especially after they've been in it for a while. And I just, I wonder if this is ultimately the right path for me. And I was in a good spot. So I thought maybe I'll just kind of see what else might be out there. I went on a number of interviews and realized with each other company that I was sort of targeting, it would have essentially just been more of the same, if not perhaps a bit more intense kind of on the toxicity scale. Mm-hmm. And I had this idea. I, I had kind of the sort of spiritual idea that maybe after seven years of being with this company, I was like looking around my workspace and I had amassed so much stuff, piles and piles of catalogs and printouts and all the things just like cluttering my space. And I thought maybe if I felt less physically tied to the space, the proverbial doors would open and I would have a clearer sense of like where my next move might be. So I did this exercise, threw away so much stuff. I could hardly move the box. (laughs) <laughs> and I thought, I think maybe I'll order myself some flowers to celebrate this exercise in my pretty new space. And mm-hmm. I came up against this issue that I had faced a number of times, which was that it was hard to find a florist that didn't cost an arm and a leg and had designs that felt kind of organic and fresh and, you know, not overly designed, a sort of in-between and, you know, that where it would feel like a true treat to order oneself flowers. And in that moment, I thought, maybe I could be the florist that I'm looking for. Yeah. And I started drafting a business plan that afternoon. It was in July of that year, I guess, 2011. And I created a business plan to create a... a floral service I would work out of my apartment the idea was to reduce overhead fill this gap in the marketplace uh, source as sustainably as possible so source on demand they wouldn't have a storefront to stock which often leads to a ton of waste and also makes it harder to stock super high quality flowers the New York City wholesale market is second largest in the world to Holland so the access that we had here is unmatched and I just 
sort of thought, I, I think I can do this. Well, you know, I don't know why, but I had this confidence that I could go for it. And I had showed it to a few friends and they're like, yeah, 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 this looks like a really good plan. And I built a website on Shopify and uh, just kind of went for it. So I had quit my job in fashion by Labor Day of that year. So just a few months later, I totally went for it. And it was incredible. It was an education and all of the things from floral design, which I had no formal training in, to navigating the farm market, to owning a business and all of the things that went along with it. And it, it was an, a truly incredible experience. And I ended up doing that for five years. And one of the things that I kept feeling like I was coming up against was this desire to be doing something that just felt more heart aligned. I loved that I get to, got to create beautiful experiences and really connect with people through experience by creating these designs, whether it was a one-off delivery or an event of some sort. But I just was really struggling with, I guess, the exchange of money for the thing I was doing, which is obviously crazy because I owned this <laughs> business and I needed to make that money that I was doing so much for. Uh, and it was a tough decision, but a number of other things were going on at the time. I went through a breakup that I wasn't expecting. I was really had the opportunity to look at all the pieces and kind of put myself together in, in the way that I, I wanted to continue on. And I thought about it and decided I really did need to let it go in order to focus on something that, that felt a little bit more aligned maybe with a, just giving back or, or doing something that to me felt like it mattered a little bit more. And I was having a catch up dinner with my friend Dave Heath, who's one of our co-founders and our CEO. And he had over the years talked to me about my floral business and, you know, all the things that I could do to help improve it. And I kept self-sabotaging. And I think that was other, another big clue that my heart just wasn't in it in the way that it really needed to be in order for it to succeed. And so I told him that I was closing the business and after dinner, we were just sort of walking in the city and he said, this might be strange timing with everything, you know, that you've just been thinking about, but I feel like you might be the right person to help us understand what it means to build community around our mission. Would you consider interviewing for it? And I felt extremely overwhelmed at the idea that he would even consider that I could be the right person for this. And what if I could it? And that's such a big ask and is this the thing, but so I went home and sat down and sort of meditated on it. And I just felt this rush of good bubbling up in me. And it was like, it was what he was suggesting was everything that I was seeking and could probably not have ever put a name to, you know, leading mission for a stock company. How would I ever come to that? But I thought, okay, I, again, it's sort of this, like thinking back to my boss saying, you can't not go. I was thinking you can't not interview, like at least think about it and, and put yourself into it. So I went through the rigorous interview process and amazingly was offered the job after a number of weeks. And that was the start of it. Wow. That's congratulations. That's an incredible story. And thank you very much for sharing. I'm pretty sure a lot of people that are about to graduate or graduating or just thinking about moving from one career to the other are paying closer attention to to what you just said. And before I ask you the next question, I just I just feel that you have such an entrepreneurial spirit, right? You started the web design company and the floral company and you were always chasing your dreams. Is there any kind of 
advice that you could give to to people that might be a little bit younger or they're looking for changing their career, something that might be helpful to them? Yeah, I think when I look back, the common thread and, and when I have these conversations with other people who are kind of, we're at the same place that I've now been at twice, both in the, the fashion industry and then in the floral businesses, the, to take the chance to really listen to yourself, it will always feel scary. I think certainly there are a number of things a person can have lined up to ensure that they feel secure enough. And I was lucky to be in a position, I think, where I, I mean, I really didn't, I cashed out a whole bunch of my 401k, which, you know, whoever at the time strongly suggested I did not do that, <laughs> but I made a choice that that was a way that I was going to fund something that I really believed in. And, I, you know, I, of course, I wish I didn't do that at the time, but, you know, it also was materially meaningful then. And I would have probably not been where I am today if I hadn't gone through that whole process. So, I think take the chance when it really feels right. And I have this conversation with folks who are quite a bit younger, like you said, maybe coming out of college and also quite a bit older that have maybe been in the same industry for quite some time. And it feels really daunting to consider how to make that switch. But I truly, truly, truly believe that if you're really listening to what it is that you're asking yourself for and wanting and believe in and you really make an attempt to close that chapter the best that you can, you'll be truly amazed at the opportunity that you then find yourself open to. And I realize that probably does sound cliche because people say that all the time when one door closes, another one opens. But I think there has to be some science around it. It's absolutely true. You'll look for things in a way that you wouldn't have otherwise thought to look for them. And there's so much out there. Yeah, yes, no, and great advice. Mm-hmm. Very, very so, powerful. To seize opportunities. Yeah, and don't be, don't be scared, right? Just go for them. Try to risk it. If you're really, what I really, really listening to yourself, which is what you said, and it seems that you actually have a pretty good self awareness of who you are and what you want in life, and I think that's that's amazing. And again, thanks for sharing. So now switching gears a little bit, like, so tell us for for our listeners and our audience, like. Where does Bombas come from? What what does the name mean? Um, how did the company start it? What kind of like special connection do they have with homelessness? Why is it so important for them? Like, tell us a little bit more about the company. Sure. Well, to start off, Bombas is Latin for bumblebee. And it seems like an appropriate name for the company because when you think about bees as creatures, they live and work together as a hive. They're really, really teeny, but their contributions add up to something big and they work together for the greater good. So all of those things felt like they, that theme really encapsulates what Bombus's core mission is. You know, we started quite small, socks are small things. (laughs) We had small goals at first, you know, to donate 1 million pairs in 10 years. And working together as a hive, as we call ourselves internally, and really our greater hive, our entire community and customer base, we believed that we could achieve things that were much bigger than ourselves. And so this idea really was born out of a quote that Dave had seen on Facebook that said, socks are the most requested clothing item at homeless shelters. And it was posted by the Salvation Army, and you just sort of happened to see it. Also, someone with great entrepreneurial spirit just thought, what if 
you know, what if we can create this business that sells amazing socks to our consumer and at the same time we're able to fulfill this need that we thought most people probably had no idea about. You know, when we think about mm-hmm. donating clothing, it's like that's something that is pretty top of mind for a lot of people, but you kind of don't think about the undergarments and things like socks yep. that are wear through items. It's kind of gross to donate things like, you know, old underwear and old socks. So there's just this great need for a very large population of people, unfortunately. And the idea was to be able to help solve for that. That's really cool. That wow. is amazing. Yeah. So, and, inspiring yeah. right it just and a win for <laughs> facebook and sometimes we don't want to get on there because of all the negative things we see but that turned out to be a really positive experience so that's incredible um, right. one of the things i love about your website which i feel is different from a lot of social impact companies and uh, and i just love it about yours is that you have a whole page on homelessness and what it looks like to be unhoused and um really taking people into not just, you know, you buy a pair, we give a pair, but really going beyond that and educating people on that community. So um, I'm curious what you've personally learned being more involved with the homelessness community or the homeless community. And what do you feel like um, maybe are still some misconceptions that you can help clear up for people listening? Sure. Yeah. And I think to give a little bit of context, so I have the honor of leading our giving team and it's a pretty small team or a team of four at the moment uh, that's entirely focused on the distribution of our donation product as well as managing volunteer events that we do internally as a team. We're usually able to volunteer together barring pandemic situations, you know, it's a little bit hybrid now, virtual, in person, but somewhere between five and 10 times every month working with our giving partners in New York City and because of virtual connectivity, able to also work with partners and communities outside of New York, which has totally been a silver lining. Uh, But giving back is so important to us as a brand. And and that's really also where I sort of started with Bombus was this idea that our mission or the one for one mission would always exist that is built into the DNA of our company. But what we saw was an opportunity for our team members to get more involved, to give back in a hands-on way. And at the time when I joined, it was like our mode of communication was always at all emails and like a text message thread that we were all on. Like all communication was just to everyone all the time. And that's kind of how we thought about things. Like if there was a volunteer event, everyone's going And there was just such deep interest in this. And we knew that there was room to expand that both among our customer base and greater community. So all of this was really born out of firsthand experience and getting to connect. And that I think has been integral in helping us truly understand the complexities of homelessness as an issue, the numerous intersectionalities with homelessness, and how to be both individuals that give back meaningfully and, of course, a company that can give back meaningfully. And that meant doing a ton of learning. And I think there was, well, there continues to be, but certainly at the beginning, an earnestness and an attempt to allow the time, and I feel very grateful that we allowed the time to really let the first few years be a true education 
And of course, we'll always continue to learn, but now five years in and through all of these experiences and and giving back firsthand and really doing the work behind the scenes has felt super important. And that's not just the giving team, but truly our entire company getting involved, even as we continue to grow, um, ensuring that everyone feels that direct connection through the work that they do every day and through these also volunteer opportunities that exist. So all of that to say, as it relates to things like misconceptions, it's it's a lot that we've learned by doing and observing. And, you know, I, I have a number of close friends that are experiencing homelessness that I've come to know through my experience. And it's just, I mean, I'm so grateful, one, of course, for their friendship and to to be able to learn in different ways about how no two situations really look alike and how to be a best advocate and friend and how to think about things like the language that I use, the way that we talk about things, how to really think about what support and help means, how to meet someone where they're at. And those are things that we try to take on as lessons and put into practice on a regular basis and then feel the importance of being able to share that with our greater community because It is an incredibly complex topic. It can feel very overwhelming, not sure where to start. And I think that one of the the biggest misconceptions is this sort of sense of other that when you see someone experiencing homelessness, and you might even observe, or people listening might constantly observe even the language that's often used, which is to say the homeless or homeless person, homeless community, and sort of labeling labeling that person as having that identity fully. And that alone can be quite damaging. It's hopefully something that someone only would experience for a very limited amount of time. It's something that it's the effect of an experience that led to this point, whether it was a traumatic loss, traumatic experience, lack of support network, a life event that any one of us could be subject to. And so I think this idea that we have in our heads of this picture of homelessness, there is this often, certainly not everyone, but kind of inherent sense of blame when we see someone in in that situation. And some people hold that quietly. Others are unfortunately very vocal about outwardly blaming folks who are homelessness, get a job, you know, why are you just sitting there? What's wrong with you? Stop taking drugs, like things that are extremely harmful, not to mention harmfully presumptuous of a person without any kind of compassion or empathy for what as a human they might have experienced to to have them be in this place. No one wants to be homeless. I think that's another thing that kind of relates to the blame is that this idea that an individual that is choosing to sleep on the street, essentially live on the street versus choosing the option of a shelter, wants to be there. And that's absolutely untrue. They may prefer to be there versus be in a shelter situation, which for many reasons is actually deemed a rational choice, even by service providers, because shelters can be, and especially during this past year and a half, very crowded places, hectic places, 
Um, sometimes are subject to violent experiences or theft. There's a lot going on. And knowing that a person, well, not knowing maybe fully what a person might have experienced, but likely, very likely, some kind of life trauma that has them in the situation to begin with, to then deal on top of that with a number of different folks who are all trying to process on their own. That's, that's not an ideal place to be. Um, and I think there's a big misunderstanding about that as well. I mean, certainly most service providers are trying very hard to do their very best, but there's a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot that's wrong with the system that makes it really challenging for someone to seek the support that they need appropriately. So anyway, maybe starting to ramble a little bit, bringing it back to this <laughs> oh, that's, idea. It's a big, a big <laughs> problem, right? It's a very, very complex, I guess, problem that we all have to kind of, uh, play a part into result into solving so no it, it, i think it this is very helpful and i think it helps the audience and help us and help people that are constantly listening to episodes like this one really get a much much better understanding and appreciation and i think that's key right because uh the first step towards empathy it's probably just understanding and so everything that you've said kind of resonates with me i'm sure that it resonates with some of the listeners and, and it's important to mention it that said, uh, do, do you guys just reached 50 million uh, in donations uh, to homeless shelters? Is that correct? That's correct. Congratulations, yeah. 50 million. It's like so, I, that's incredible, incredible. It's, it's amazing. Um, and, and I think people can also see in real time, if they go to the website, they can see real time kind of where you guys are. You have reached so, so many different milestones. You've kind of come from like a, like a quote that someone read a while back to the start of the company and two things. The first question is like, when you started with this company, how, how big was Bombas back then? Just want to make a picture of how kind of fast you guys have grown to everyone that's listening to us and how big is it now? Maybe number of employees or. Yeah. At, when I first started, we were a team of fewer than 20 people we were sharing an office with actually one of our very first giving partners, an organization that listeners might know called Back on My Feet, which has national presence. They help folks who are experiencing homelessness essentially get back on their feet through the discipline of running and supportive services. So 20 and sharing an office to now uh, pretty close to 200 employees, I think. Still good wow. friends, but back on my feet. <laughs> no, that's incredible. And again, congratulations. What a huge milestone. What is the next, what's the next uh, goal? I mean, you already reached 50 million, which is really unheard of and amazing. Uh, what's next and uh, what, what is it, what's going to take to achieve it? Excellent question. Something I think about constantly. <laughs> we... Uh, so yeah, 50 million, big milestone and, and truly kind of laughable in hindsight that we had set this goal of 1 million pairs donated in 10 wow. years. Yes. So it's exciting the way that things really came together and that we have an incredible customer base that makes all of this possible. We truly could not do this without our customers. So they are really the ones that are, are donating these socks and t-shirts and underwear. And we're so grateful to be able to facilitate those distributions on their behalf. And so at 50, yeah, we're looking forward to some millions that come after that. And certainly we've, we've let our partners know what they can expect. 
you know, on a, on a yearly basis. So we have to keep being able to answer to their requests and the introduction of both t-shirts and underwear has been incredibly exciting knowing that they're both the number three and number two most second most requested item, respectively three third most for t-shirts, second most for underwear. So these core basics, I mean, there's definitely this theme here, this need for core basics, both for the material need, of course, and also to, to continue with the theme of providing dignity through the products that we're able to distribute, the dignity of having clean or clothing items when might not otherwise easily have access to laundry or, or clean clothing remains central to our vision for donation products. Um, and that's something that we also continue to constantly gut check with our network of giving partners. We have over 3,500 across the U.S. There are organizations that help to meet the needs of folks at risk at or currently experiencing homelessness in all different ways. They're incredible. So we're always asking them. I mean, thank, we're so thankful for them to ask so many questions. We just always want to make sure that we're doing right by them. I mean, I feel like they and the communities that they support are, you know, they're my boss for the most part. We're, you know, I'm answering to them. My team is answering to them. We just want to make sure that we're evolving in a way that continues to provide the support that they really do need. I guess just in thinking about what's beyond the product is, so much more the thought of like well if the material goods provide this connection that maybe we weren't really even expecting at the beginning that handing someone a pair of socks that needs a pair of socks it's not just about the pair of socks I mean yes it, it satisfies a material need but so often we were experiencing this this exchange as a catalyst for connection and conversation and compassion and that's what we were also hearing more and more and more from our giving partners that folks would come to them to satisfy, help satisfy a material need, but in exchange, be able to develop deeper relationships, connect to build the trust needed to be able to then further connect someone to the support services that might help them on to their, their next phase or to the next step. And I don't think that that can be understated. That's been a really, really pleasant outcome of of this commitment to this one for one idea that there's so much more there. And I think that's a big part of the future too, is just understanding how to use material need for good, an item, a basic item for good that can lead to so much more. And even just, you brought up just um, how it helps uh, bring back dignity and self-worth and that goes so much beyond, um, so simple to start with a pair of socks, but goes so much deeper than that too. So it's a, it's an incredible way to serve people. Um, and you talked about your over 3,500 partners. That's a lot of people to manage. I know that, uh, that's a lot of your, your job entails that. So there's clearly more organizations that serve, um, similar missions throughout the country. So how do you choose who you're going to work with? And tell us, I guess, a little bit of the best practices that likely came through some trial and error along the way to, to get to this stage. Yeah. Well, it's funny to think back to this well trial and error, like just not knowing where to even start. I guess we realized we like had this mission and we, we were ready. We had the socks to donate. And then I think there was this moment of like, well, wait a second, 
how do we donate socks? Where do we start? You know, do we know how to do this? And amazingly, a quick search led us to Hannah Socks based in Ohio. And they were already doing exactly that. They were distributing socks to folks who needed them in the probably tri-state area. And so we connected with them and we said, hey, we're Bombas and this is what we're doing. And, you know, we would love to donate socks to you. And I think there's a little bit, we recently caught up with them. We do these uh, virtual meet and greets with our partners on like a weekly basis. It's been this really nice way to remain connected. Um, since Zoom has become such a thing, it was just like, well, normally we would go in person, but it's been great to have this outreach across the U.S. So anyway, we reconnected with Hannah Sox and we were just kind of thinking back to the early days and they said, yeah, we remember. And we were like, what's the catch? This, this <laughs> seems too good to be true. <laughs> and we do come up against that sometimes, but now I think that more people know who Bombas is. It's, it's made it a little bit easier to you know, they get it already. They know that we're doing what we say we're doing. And so we, what was, that was the question about how someone becomes a partner? Yeah. How you choose them and some of the trial and error along the way, which you just talked about, but obviously is it people apply or how do you choose who you're going to work with? And you've amassed 3,500. So I'm sure there's some sort of collection process or there's probably a lot more that need your help than you can even fulfill right now. So many more that, than we can even reach. We we have an application that's on our website that folks can fill out on behalf of the organization that they represent. And it's a pretty comprehensive application uh, to the point where we think it acts as, as a really great first check to ensure that those who are applying to receive donation stocks are fully capable of receiving them, distributing them, are doing the work that they say that they're doing, all of this to help us with the vetting process, you know, just wanting to really ensure that the organizations that we're sending to will, in fact, hold up their end of the agreement to distribute them to the folks that need them. And there have been very, very, very few instances so far, thank goodness, that have been problematic. We, We work with really great organizations. One of the one of the guidelines that we've been wanting to check more and more is ensuring that they offer support inclusively. You know, we wouldn't ever want a situation where someone can't have access to an organization for some reason based on who they are. And we want to ensure that our partners are, are upholding the core values that we hold ourselves at Bombas. Uh, but to your point about there being so many more organizations and we're able to meet the needs of, and, and our organizations are all different sizes. Our smallest partner might receive a minimum of 1,000 pairs of socks per year. Our largest partner in 2019 received 1 million pairs of wow. socks in <laughs> one year with a national presence and a distribution network of their own and uh, what we call sub-partners when an organization that we distribute to also has partners of their own. So they then also receive the the donation product and that, you know, they're vetting for those. And so that's kind of also been an incredible thing that we didn't really realize would happen at first, but to see the, the collaboration and community cooperation of sharing needed items has been really neat. So beyond the 3,500 who, serve in all kinds of ways you know like I said from small to large and 
Uh, they could be a town library that folks might not think about as a service center, but very often that's a, a great place for someone experiencing homelessness to go and have some quiet time, access the internet, read books, you know, just have an indoor place to be for a while. So a lot of libraries often find themselves bringing in connection to social services and having something like socks on hand for someone to come in and pick up and then maybe connect in a deeper way is the type of thing that we've been learning through experience. So Title I schools, of course, what you think of as a, a standard overnight shelter, all different types of transitional programming that help with various intersections of homelessness to meet different needs, uh, food insecurity, organizations that focus on food insecurity and food service. There are so many different ways that these organizations are connecting, and we're very happy to support any of them knowing that these are these are the individuals that they're working with and that we want to ensure we're getting donation product to. But yeah, we currently have over 4,000 organizations on our wait list. Wow. Oh my gosh, wow. wow. That's amazing. Well, yeah, amazing. So long as we can, I think, Great. find ways to begin to help them in a bigger way. And, and I think two of the considerations are, one, from an inventory perspective, one of the things that we want to make sure we're continuing to do is provide uh, consistency for our existing network of giving partners. We learned how much it means to the organization staff themselves to be able to count on what they've received in the past and know that we'll be able to answer their needs, answer to their needs each year so that they can then say alleviate budget that might have previously gone to things like socks or underwear and apply it to something else. And we've learned about all kinds of amazing ways that orgs have been able to reallocate budget, which also isn't something that we had really even considered at first, but is this kind of happy outcome of, of something that they can now count on. And also for the relationship building side, having partners remain a part of the network year after year has been a great way for us to deepen that trust and relationship building and be able to learn from them in, in more and more impactful ways. Um, and then, yeah, just like managing the relationships between that many organizations is also a, a wonderful challenge. And so figuring out how to onboard more partners, bring them off the wait list as our inventory increases and, and also continue to have great relationships as much as we can beyond it feeling a little, you know, it's transactional by nature, but we want it to feel as, as personal as possible. No, that makes, that makes sense. And it's uh, definitely, definitely a good challenge to have, to have so many people actually wanting to be part of such an amazing um, organization that you guys have built and, and that everyone's supporting through your partners and the community and everything. So once again, congratulations, congratulations. It's been very, very uh, interesting to hear a little bit more about you guys and to listen to what you had to say. And um, for all those, um, I guess, companies out there or some of those uh, listeners that are out there that are trying or starting a charitable initiative, uh, what would be like your top two uh, advice as far as just uh, selecting the cost? And once they have the cost, how how should they carry it out so that it's intentional and purpose driven like, like Bombas is? Great questions. And it's so nice to see so many more companies now feeling a true responsibility to, to be able to take on a cause and really commit to it. 
And I do talk to folks about this a bit. And I think one of the most important things is to pick something that really feels true to your company's purpose and is an answer to a problem that you've observed or know and how can the infrastructure that your company represents be the solution? For us, it's pretty direct. We, we make consumers, we make socks for our consumers. There's a great need from a population that doesn't have access to them. It aligns quite well. I know that that won't always be exactly the case for every company, but there's also so much to be said for the skills that one or what a group of people who are part of a company inherently have and the way that skills can be put to use in a really meaningful way. I think sometimes it's overlooked. Like there's this idea that it needs to be like a material one for one or a monetary donation. But I think skills-based offerings are becoming, are increasingly needed and something that's like not fully been tapped into yet. So I think that's one way to look at it is what are you good at? What do you care about? pick the thing that feels true. You know, it could be really easy to get distracted. And I think, you know, we've seen lots of different ways that companies do give back in all different kinds of ways, but trying to remain true to purpose and establishing something that truly is meaningful and that the company can get behind. If it's a small company, maybe it's a decision that's being made together among the employees and leadership and what do we care about? What are we good at? Where could we leave our mark? What would we want to do? And then talk to the people who are doing it every day. You know, there's so much that we didn't know about and didn't pretend to know when we when we started to donate socks. And we really counted on these organizations who are doing the incredibly challenging work every day and did our very best to keep up as much as we could with our own firsthand experience, but really relying on the experts in the area that you're trying to assist. Don't assume that you know anything ever really you know like constantly learn and be committed to learning and 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 deferring to the the experts in the space while bringing the expertise that you yourselves represent um and being willing to continue to evolve with that and also just one I guess a third piece would just be the importance of internal buy-in and adoption of a cause I think if we didn't have an internal culture that's as supportive and compassionate and people-centric as we do, it would have been more challenging to adopt an outward-facing mission that's based on those things. So while it might be harder to retrofit an entire internal culture, especially if it's a very large established company, I think that that's a really important step, even if it starts small, beginning to ensure that you're embodying what it is that you're putting out there, both from like a consumer talking to consumers. There's obviously big bullshit detectors out there. You know, it'll, it won't, it'll fall flat if it's not, if it's not genuine and, you know, a a truly holistic part of the day to day. That's, uh, that's something like, it's very important. And most people probably forget about it, right? It's just, the company that's actually trying to drive this initiative have to has to truly have the 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 cause at heart, and they have to really 
all the employees have to buy into the culture and it's it's critical and 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 as you said it right it's easier if you start when you're starting the company when you're smaller when you're 20 people gathered together in one office shared office as opposed to when you're already 200 300 maybe a thousand employees and all of a sudden you want to do something nice and good well maybe not everyone's going to be in agreement with that but no that's that's great thank you so much for sharing that advice and uh, thank you thank you so much for sharing your story as well yeah. I, the other thing that I love that you mentioned early on is um, just the importance of listening to the people that you're trying to help and the experts that are already in that area. I think the other difficult thing is if you do have an established company that wants to do some sort of charitable initiative, short-term, long-term, whatever, at that point, they're ready to get started. They're ready to dive in. They're ready to throw resources at it. And so to say, okay, if we're actually going to do this well, which is had obviously been critical to your success, then you stopped to listen to the right people. You didn't just start setting up shop on a street corner and handing out socks. You had to find the experts and um, really connect with the people you wanted to help. And I think that's a really hard thing to do that obviously you guys took the time to do it well and to really um, establish that model. And that's a, been a big part of your success and makes it very genuine in the way people connect with you as well, that um, they're not just doing something good, but they are supporting a company that really has an aim to change the world. So thanks for all you've been doing. and. As we wrap up here, you guys have 4,000 potential partners on a waiting list. So how can we sell some more socks and shirts and underwear? Where do people go and tell us what to do to take the next step to support you? Yes, incredible. Well, our website is bombas.com, B-O-M-B-A-S.com. And actually, if someone wanted to take it a step further beyond just being a customer, and I don't mean that lightly, certainly not just being a customer, it's hugely important. Every sock sold, or t-shirt, or underwear, you know, we're absolutely donating one on the other side. So every single bit counts. But also on our website is a giving back page, which speaks a little bit more to our mission, digs into some common misconceptions, takes it a little bit further beyond some of the topics that we covered today. And there's also a giving directory, which if uh, a visitor to the site puts in their zip code, it'll come back with giving partners in their geographical area, which I think is pretty cool. So if someone did want to get involved in a hands-on way or just have a better understanding of the organization that our product is going to, they can do a search that way. And we're also always sharing lots of content on our social channels, particularly on Instagram, which is just searching Bombas on Instagram. And um, there's always some neat ways to get involved. Right now we're doing a running festival, actually, in support of Back of My Feet, as I mentioned. Um, so that's, that's an exciting way to kind of tie our performance running product into a really nice give back mission. So anyone can get involved in that. It's a virtual running festival for the whole month of September. So that's a, a fun thing for folks to join, too. Very cool. And if you just need a boost in your day, then just go watch the website counter go up. <laughs> As all the stuff. <laughs> it's like so fun to watch. <laughs> I don't disagree. I love watching it too. <laughs> <laughs> well, Kelly, thank you so much. Christy, great. This has been an amazing conversation yeah. with you. Thank you for giving us the time and the opportunity to learn a little bit more about Bombas, to learn a little bit more about your costs and your history. And of course, the bright future that I'm sure your organization has, your community has, and your partners have. And of course, 
if you enjoy this conversation as much as Christy and I did, please sign sign in, uh, sign up for Logistics with Purpose. Uh, we would love to continue talking to people like Kelly and uh, like organizations like Bombas that are truly making a positive impact in this world. To you, Kelly, and to your team and to everyone that kind of works really hard at Bombas, thank you so much for what you do. Thank you for leading by example. And I really, really hope that everyone runs and tries to help your cause as quickly as possible. And they actually participate in all these different activities that you have planned for them in September and going forward as well. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Such a great opportunity to get to talk about all of this with you all. So I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.